Shank Bagley. Shank Bagley. Shank Bagley. Hello and welcome to Shatbagley, an old Lincolnshire adjective to describe absolutely anything loose and disorderly, which sums up this Lincolnshire last quite nicely. My name is Katie Johnson and in a moment we shall hear all about Guernsey cows and the strange phenomenon with carrots, discover that no Labradors were hurt in the making of lemon myrtle and how many herbal teas can one person judge at a time. First though, with it being episode 10 of series 2, here are a few things with the same number. Passengers on Boeing's first commercial passenger plane, the 247. Average duration in seconds when chimpanzees mate. And the age of Waffle Cat, who in 2018 recorded the longest ever jump by Pussycat of 213.36 centimetres, or 7 feet in old money. Hope this finds you well. I've just been complimented on how I smell. Mind you, it wasn't a chip shop. And the chap behind the counter said it was lovely to have something other than, and I quote, cow poo from farmers popping in. Hmm. Time for my first guest, and it was whilst at Malvern Food Festival in Worcestershire last weekend that I bumped into Jane Raven from Myrtle's Kitchen. Jane makes the most wonderful chutneys and preserves, and they were on her stall, but with something new too. These are our lemon myrtle seasonings and lemon myrtle is the sort of special secret ingredient. It's um, an ingredient that the Aborigines have used for thousands of years and it's meant to have all these superpowers. You can run 100 metres in? Absolutely, you can create miracles on it. <laughs> I'm joking. But um, it's meant to have wonderful properties, for instance, um, if you use it as a tea it's meant to help your acne or skin conditions. That's just one example. But we take it, we, we hand blend it with Droitwich brine salt, so that's a nice local product. And then we combine it with a herb. And we do one of six, so we've got tarragon, mint, oh, this is where I forget one, thyme, rosemary, dill and oregano. And you can use it as a seasoning or you can uh, use it with cooking. But it just elevates the flavour of the food. And Droitwich brine salt is a lovely smooth salt. It hasn't got that harshness. So yeah, it's a lovely thing. And of course the lemon myrtle is the rare thing. You don't see it in this country very often. When you say lemon myrtle, I'm a bit confused because myrtle is the name of a Labrador. <laughs> and now all I've got in my head is a lemon part yes. of a Labrador. Well, Myrtle's Kitchen is named after my Labrador, bless her, no longer with us. Oh. But uh, yes, so that's where the Myrtle comes from. But I had some customers that came to me one day at a festival and said, you've got to use this lemon Myrtle. It's brilliant. And uh, they traveled all over the world. And I tried to use it in my chutneys or jams, but it just was lost and I wasn't happy enough with it. But it's too good a product to lose in the taste profile. So I swapped it and did the seasonings. And it's quite nice to be able to offer our customers something totally different. So lemon myrtle's a herb? It's a herb. It's a flower. They grow in bushes, uh, masses of, of row upon row of bushes in, in Australia. And you walk through them and it smells divine, apparently. So that's on my bucket list, to go and see that one day. I'd love that. So is it a soft herb or a... It's, it's soft, uh, it's really fragrant, 
costs an arm and a leg, we pay over £80 a kilo for it. So it's really expensive. But it's when it arrives in the kitchen, oh my God, it's just beautiful. The smell is just, whoa. You just bury your head in the box and... Yeah, wonderful. I, do you get it from Australia then? It's shipped from Australia. I buy it from a spice merchant that's based in Borough Market up in London. And uh, that's where I source it from. But uh, yeah, it'd probably be cheaper to buy it direct. But I quite like supporting British businesses. So that's why I buy it there. Have you ever looked into see maybe growing it here? Is it, it just not suitable? Yeah, we don't have the... Uh, the well perhaps we do nowadays with global warming but at the moment we haven't got the the soil conditions and the the weather to be able to grow it here the myrtle tree is a relative of it i believe but no it, it's it's for hotter climates mm. now as i'm talking to you you do your own podcast with your friend we do now yeah. your friend's name is was it lisa, lisa. siegel yeah. yeah foodies across the pond it's called and on this podcast, 70% of the listenership is in America. Is it? And your friend, Lisa, is American. Yeah, she's based in Seattle. And yeah, she's a California babe, actually. But she moved to Seattle about 20 years ago. And yeah, we met during lockdown. It's a magical story. We let, met in a business group online, as, as you did in during yeah. COVID. And we just hit it off. We became firm really I mean I love her to bits she's such a good friend of mine now and we ended up zooming we found that we both had the same ambitions in life to write cookbooks and uh, yeah it went from there and uh, we've got a podcast we've got a weekly newsletter that we send out now as well on Substack and our second cookbook is has just been edited and hopefully will be printed in the next three weeks. What's it about? Because the first one was Christmas, wasn't it? It was Christmas. This is more an all-year-round one with a bit more of a summer bent. So there's all sorts of family recipes for entertaining your friends, family, um, from simple, you know, chuck-it-together, easy-going recipes to something that could challenge you a bit more if you want to be challenged. But yes, and Lisa supplied, obviously, the cocktails because that's her forte. Well, she's constantly in an alcoholic stupor. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I wouldn't say that out loud, obviously. I warn everybody she's coming over in August because she's coming over to promote the book with me. So... Um, Hi yeah. to gin. Yeah, and the gin. And we will be having lots of fun. Because we finally met last year. I went over to Seattle last year, and that's the first time we'd met in face to face. We wrote a cookbook together, but it's the first time we'd met. Isn't that lovely? And safe journey to Lisa, who is heading over to Herefordshire next month to visit Jane and launch their second cookbook. Myrtle's Kitchen is Jane's business, and the podcast Foodies Across the Pond. Speaking of food, came across a book from 1961, Vintage Highland and Other Recipes by a chap called Robert MacDonald. I feel I need to do that in a Scottish accent, but I know it'll happen, so I won't. Uh, Golden Rules for the Kitchen. Uh, so it's one of these where it says, without cleanliness and punctuality, good cooking is impossible. And leave nothing dirty, clean and clear as you go. Probably learned that in home economics when we were at school, or domestic science as it was called. Uh, I love this one though, it says stew boiled is stew spoiled and strong fire for roasting, clear fire for broiling and wash vegetables in three waters. Sure it doesn't mean still like have a Buxton and 
Highland Spring. Hmm, I suppose they did that in the old days. And then the one I want to mention is called under the Highland section. It's 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 labelled under a Highland section. And Highland nettle broth. And it, it only has chicken stock, nettles, barley, pepper and salt as the ingredients. And this has been provided by a Mrs. Forbes who sent this in. It looks like one of these books where he's done his own thing, uh, but also has had um, recipes sent in as well. So gather nettles and wash well and chop very finely. At not one stage does it say <laughs> wear marigold gloves or anything. Oh, if you're going to have a go with nettles, um, yeah, I'm hopeless. Have some good stock in, which you have cooked a sufficient quantity of pearl barley. Add the chopped nettles, simmer till tender and season to taste. And that's it, Highland nettle broth. Um, interesting enough, at the top of this page, features the head of a Highland cow and the other side is a... It looks like a stag, a deer. Um, but the cow leads me nicely into my next guest. Not talking highlands this time, but the equally beautiful Guernsey cow. Mark Jones from Kelsmore Dairy in Garway, Herefordshire, was also at Malvern Food Festival with their wonderful ice cream and, as always, a long queue of customers. I've known Mark, Sue and the family for a long time, but couldn't remember just how long. We've been doing ice cream for... 22 years? Is it? Yes. Because oh. I remember it being a long, well, I've known well, you for a long, long time, but yeah. have I known yes. you for 22 years? It, it, it would be feels close to that, yes, yeah, because uh, feels you, like you, it. when you first met the family, they were very small. Were. Yes, were. So, um, they've grown up in the ice cream trade and uh, they're now running the job. I'm I'm pretty much sidelined, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, hence, I guess you're the one that's talking to me while Sue sorts out the queue of ice cream. Ah, I didn't think oh, of that. Oh, you've got me there. So was this a case of when the government said with, with dairy farming to diversify? You must have been the one of the first to jump then. Uh, I think it was more a case that we saw that the market uh, wasn't reflecting the value of Guernsey milk. Uh, we've got a unique product in Guernsey, Guernsey milk, so we needed to, to justify milking this funny colour cow and uh, the ice cream fitted the bill and i think as we've become more experienced in milk processing we'll probably move into other products now i've got josh there as, as the next generation in milk processing so you know katie first met josh when he was knee high to a grasshopper or about one or two and uh, josh is now running the factory so and he's probably a lot, lot taller than me now. So there we are. He's a lot taller than I am as oh, well. Okay. And a lot stronger. <laughs> so, and single. Oh. Yes. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and, do you know, he'll love that you said that. And now I've, I'm thinking, do I keep that in? I think I'm going to have to. Now then, going back to the Guernsey, it's the butterfat, isn't it? That's the it secret. It is. And it, it's the butterfat, the texture of the milk, and the fact that a Guernsey cow doesn't digest carotene. She's the only breed of cow that she has a genetic flaw that, she produces milk that contains carotene so if you fed a Guernsey cow carrots you'll get orange milk so we see a, a massive variation when the cows eat grass the 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 color of the the milk changes the fat doesn't necessarily increase but the color it changes to yellow so it's, it's ideally suited to on-farm processing which is why most of the Guernsey cows in the country are kept on farms that do process their own milk so when you say the butterfat doesn't doesn't change much, it does fluctuate, but not a lot. It's usually the winter it goes down. Am I right? No, a little bit. Usually in the winter the milk, the the fat goes up because of the food you're feeding. Yes, uh, simply because we've got more control over the amount of energy the cow's consuming in the spring and summertime because the grass is rich in protein. 
that will depress the uh, uh, butterfat just because the cow processes the, the grass so quickly. Whereas in the winter, their di- digestion slows down because their diet's more fibrous and therefore they make more fat. How many have you got now, girls? Uh, we've got 120 um, today. We're TB testing tomorrow. Oh, gosh, so good luck with we, that. We always, every dairy farmer in the country oh. lives on a knife edge. We will tackle that on Thursday when we read them. Well, touch wood and everything, oh, it really is a lottery, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is a complete, we play Russian roulette with this job. And yeah, I don't think people understand the risk that we take in, in keeping cows. And there's a absolutely no guarantee with with life and we rely on those cows being fit and healthy to produce that milk every day and they will do that for well 305 days of the year they do they work very hard I, you know i take my health to my cows every day they come into the parlor quite happily and give me milk and most of our milk goes off to cotswold dairy in tewkesbury but then 10 percent of it we process on the farm into the ice cream is the Guernsey breed safe, Mark? Is, is, she's not endangered at all, is she? Because you don't see many, do you? We've got about 2,000 registered females in the country. So, yes, I think she is under threat. Yet she's got all these tremendous attributes which aren't particularly valued by commercial dairy farmers. In a way, you have to be processing the milk on farm to, to make the most out of it. Uh, to make that cow really pay and we we trade an enormous amount on the image of the cow as soon as you put a cow's picture up she sells the product for you so we rely on the yeah the image of the cow uh, and talking to our customers uh, we like being very close to our customers but representing the the breed in yourself you've just finished a you called it a tour what's this Uh, tour you mentioned I've well, I'm currently vice chairman of the uh, English Guernsey Cattle Society, and for 2023 we were hosting the World Federation Tour. So once every four years, uh, Guernsey breeders from across the world come together and tour the host country. So they spend two weeks touring all the herds in the country, inspecting the cows, and passing comment on what they see. And then we ended the tour with a two-day sit-down conference uh, where we had mm, 12 speakers come to address the conference and um, yeah they they finished um, just as the three county show started and they've all now gone back across the world um, America Canada uh, New Zealand Australia and Kenya and those those girls would have all originated I guess from uh, uh, the breed in, in Guernsey itself they would have done everything came from the Guernsey breed that was bred on Guernsey and that is why it was bred in this remote island state and why it's got this genetic difference to any other breed of cow and hence why they they process carotene different to any other cow and that's something we've got to work very hard to try and preserve so while some people do crossbreed them you know we have to be very protective of those genetics uh, to make sure we don't dilute that potential in the cow. So was it because Guernsey don't have any carrots? I mean, how, how on earth did they no A, find this out and, and, and work it out that this is what it is? I've no idea why it happened. I don't think it happened intentionally. It couldn't have done. Back in the early 1800s, who would have had this knowledge? It's just a genetic difference or flaw. 
so it, it's just our good fortune that it exists uh, and we should work hard to try and preserve it yeah they also give uh, three times um, the omega-3 levels of any other milk so they've got a tremendous advantage as a as a cow you know i hate to use the term superfood but could this milk be a superfood um it's just not being properly exploited we've got the benefit of only producing a2 protein as well so that means the milk is easier to digest and you know we're not allowed to state this as a scientific fact in this country in australia and america they it's promoted very hard that uh, a2 milk has a lot of health benefits but we're not allowed to promote that here we need to be making placards that's what we need to do uh, before i leave you favorite trait of the guernsey it's got to oh, be something temperament yeah completely docile um stubborn um very female yeah <laughs> and you wonder why your son's still single right? All three sons are still single. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, fellas, that was Dad, not me. And I suspect it's because they all work so very hard and, as we know in farming, ridiculous hours. Thank you to Mark from Kelsmore Dairy. And if you ever see their ice cream for sale, I can fully recommend. It is delicious. And a cow fact for you. They have an acute sense of smell and can detect odours up to six miles away. Just thinking the local ones will have smelt my perfume in the chippy as well then. Thank you for getting in touch as always. You can email podcast at theshackbaggerly.co.uk or via Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Speaking of which, I've popped a video on there for one of the steam trains my sister and I travelled on last weekend as part of the Seven Valley Railway 1940s event. If you want to see it, it's had well over 2,000 views when I last looked. Um, There's nothing quite like a steam train, is there? So it's on there if you want to have a nosy. Um, And sadly, it doesn't go boo, but it's got the steam anyway. Time for my final guest on Shat Pagley and its food and drink expert, Charlotte Pike. Charlotte is a writer, author, broadcaster, teacher, and recently judged 184 herbal teas for the Great Taste Awards. (sighs) Who would have thought that there were that many variations? It's interesting because the awards are are really global so you get lots of combinations of herbal teas from all around the world lots of things like i don't know hibiscus chrysanthemum um, mate from argentina so there's all sorts of unusual herbs lots of sort of greek mountain herbs that's a very popular combination so there's so many varieties of herbs and plants and flowers that go into these teas from all around the world so it's actually a really interesting education (laughs) but it's interesting tasting all these products because because it's so global you cannot have tried them all before so there's always something new to to discover and of course a a zillion different types of um mint tea variations (laughs) but yeah it was really interesting i love it i really love it i love all the tasting thing is with herbal teas though they're either going to keep you calm help you sleep give you energy so when you're judging all these you would have had to do them at certain times of day because there's no point in the morning having something that's going to then the rest of the day all you want to do is go to bed i think that's exactly it lots of chamomile as well which i'm a bit sort of 
fairy or you know it's supposed to be quite <laughs> but the thing that's actually quite interesting about the whole process is you really need to pace yourself because i think it's quite easy to forget how much of an impact herbs have on the body so and, and having so many different types in a day you can really really feel the effect of them in your system so you do really need to pace yourselves it seems quite innocuous because i also do coffee tasting as well everyone thinks god if you're having 60 espresso in a day that's really going to affect you of course it can do depending on how much you have but actually the herbs can have just as much of an effect mm. um even it may seem pretty um innocuous yeah i don't know is there anything on the box that says do not have any more than so many cups in a day because as you say you could have have too many that's a really interesting point i've never seen anything on a box we get everything to taste it's blind tasting so it, you may find some do actually have it on the packaging. I just haven't seen it. Yeah. So, yeah, you'd think they have. They'd have some kind of um, advice there, wouldn't you? Mm. Because um, yeah, yeah, you can definitely OD on the, <laughs> on the OD. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Poor Charlotte. What what's she doing over there? And the other half says, "Oh, she's she's had too much. I don't know, hibiscus or whatever. Yeah, not the sort of thing." Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're a kindred spirit, Charlotte. I found out something with you. I have started to learn Italian. Now, I, oh. I know you don't do Italian, but you learn, you have fluent in French and Spanish. So um, I feel that, you know, I've got some way to go, Charlotte, but obviously we're a kindred spirit because of languages. <clears throat> wonderful, wonderful. And what prompted you to learn Italian? A trip to Venice. Oh, heaven. Have you been before? I went 20 years ago, I, I know I was obviously a child, with my sister, it was a special birthday for her, and then we went a couple of weeks ago with some friends, and I'd never been with Glyn. Oh, you come off the boat, because have you been, Charlotte? Yes, only once, but yes. You come off, don't you, you must, if you're going to go to Italy, do a water taxi, you have to. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I remember the first time, and this time, when she comes into view, it makes me cry. It's just so beautiful. It's actually quite hard to take it all in. There's mm. just so much beauty in the scale of it. It's all so intricate. Buildings are so beautiful. I feel like you just need to sort of cement yourself where you are and just soak it all up. It's amazing, mm. rich and varied and beautiful. Mm. And How the, was the food and drink? Oh, I was going to say, you as a food writer must rate that part of Italy, I don't know, as, as the food was wonderful i mean obviously you don't go where it's too touristy because well the price is sky high if you go you only have to go a little way out of it and it's street food is amazing i'd never seen pasta in a box like a takeaway other than on friends the the program years and years ago but you can get wonderful fresh pasta beautiful sauces in a box to take away oh i don't think we well we didn't have a bad meal in in venice at all I love it. I actually cooked in a castle in Tuscany for a couple of weeks last summer, which was really, really fun. And, um, you know, the whole Italian approach to food is just so special. And just the way that most people really do value food and are interested in what they eat, where it comes from. You know, the whole experience of shopping for food is so different in Italy mm. compared to over here. It's just an absolute joy. Was well, it near the Rialto Bridge, the most wonderful market, with fish and fruit and veg, and the world is there, 
amazing. I've said this before, if you've never been and you can go, go. While you can. I know, and it, it, it is actually worrying, and you can really see the impact. I mean, when we went, it was really quite flooded. Um, yeah. St Mark Square was very badly flooded when we were there. It does make you think, doesn't it? It's quite fleeting in a way, isn't yeah. it? And, uh, we have to make the most of it while we can. Well, I think they said if you don't, if you don't do anything, is eighty years left. Really? Mm. That's um, quite sobering, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Drop in the ocean, isn't it? Mm. Really? Yeah. So, talking about then cooking in a castle in Tuscany, because you are a chef, you trained at Ballymaloe, and you also, I mean, before you and I knew each other, you would have had lots of private clients from all over the world. Are we allowed to ask, was there anybody we knew? Was there, were there some gentry, landed gentry in there, Charlotte? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know names, oh. um, but mainly because I've got a non-disclosure agreement in place. Have for you? My work. Oh. A lot of people, you know, just do not want anyone to know. And I don't put things on social media. You know, people just don't want their lives on social media at all. So I'm really careful about what I share. What I can tell you is my clients have included global royals, film stars, leading business people, global sports stars, Nobel Prize winners, business founders, people with large estates, very well-known household figures. So I have cooked for a real range of people in different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And it has been an immense privilege. Uh, I have absolutely loved it. A lot of people get me to cook outside for them as well. So on boats and in fields and private islands and what have you. So it's... Um, I was going to say, is that because they don't want you in the house, Charlotte? They've seen the, the look of your wellies and full of mud and you're not coming in. And I realised when you said about boats, we have a good friend who does similar things and has very high-end clients. And one in particular, the world knows this person. And this particular person stays in UK time. So when they go to America, they will keep to UK time. And so it's in the middle of the night, because you've got to be on the beck and call. He goes and stays with them when they hire a villa or what have you. And beck and call. Someone tells me you should write a book. <laughs> yes. You should write a book. It's juicy, uh, juicy gossip and experience in a book and then... Um change all the names <laughs> yeah that'd be all right wouldn't it would well, add to it is it five that you've got now your books yes that's right yeah five under my own name and I've, I've contributed and worked on lots more as well so that's very exciting if anybody looks up charlotte pike i don't know if you ever have but it's um husband and wife combo in nashville do you do you know that you've got a country western <laughs> duo yeah yeah, I've heard that, and apparently it's the name of a place as well. If you put it in Google Maps, yeah, I yeah. am a place as well. So, um, yeah, who who would have thought? <laughs> to, I thought well, I'll just have a listen. They're really good. Well, I haven't done that actually, so that's going to be on my list of things to do this afternoon. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your your French and your Spanish, because I know it ended up working in Paris, but also in Milan. Was it Christie's you worked for? That must have been incredible. I did work for Christie's, yeah, it was amazing. I, I, yes, I worked in Paris. I worked for Air France, actually, which was really, really fun because I worked at their headquarters. And at that time, um, they had a language centre there. So I was teaching English to the uh, senior cabin staff and pilots. 
mm. and sort of senior management staff. So it was really, really interesting. And they would have bespoke lessons there in their language centre, which is great fun. And it was just at the sort of tail end of the sort of glamorous, um, glamorous time of flying. And there were lots of sort of glamorous um, uh, members of cabin staff. And, you know, being Air France, they had really sort of chic, policy on you know um, uniforms and luggage and you know have, have branded luggage and you could book last minute cheap flights at the weekend and dash off to wherever if you wanted to uh, um, somewhere lovely for weekends and they have the most amazing subsidized canteens so we have the most fabulous food for lunch every single day and um, you know a proper hour for lunch and a proper meal and then coffee at the coffee bar afterwards and oh it was just great fun mm. and then yeah I worked for Christie's after that and that was really fascinating I mean if you're interested in art where better to work and I was really fortunate to be involved in some really really interesting projects uh, one I was involved in to a very very small extent um, but it was happening when I was working it was the um, Princess Margaret's collection of sale really stunning stuff which is really, really amazing. Ah. And, uh, really mm. special. Very special. Loved it so much. So food is your life now, which is wonderful. And as you say, you write about it, you talk about it, you teach as well, which you do love. The one thing, though, that is still you want to do and is going back to roots from grandparents is to have a farm. Is that right? So we've got everything lined up and we're just on the hunt for something at the moment. It's really not an easy thing to do actually there are so many younger people who really do want to make a move into farming but it, it seems to be a very difficult thing to achieve at the moment i think the average age of farmer in this country is 55 years mm. old and and actually we, you know we've spoken to people who are really desperate to retire and are just worn out and want to hand over but having trouble with making that happen so it, it's a very complicated um situation but Yes, that, that's, the, that's the dream. And actually, one thing that I have learned that I really do believe in the importance of just going after your dream, mm. because actually, they, they simply won't happen unless you are brave and take a risk and try and make a move towards making it happen. And I really am determined to try and do that. And if I don't make it happen, then at least I know I tried. But um, that's that's certainly our objective at the moment. Is it a commercial venture? Because that's the problem, isn't it? Because farming in this country, the old days where you would maybe have 100, 120 acres, you would live on it. You can't do that now. So is it going to be a commercial for you or is it purely something that you want to trace your food? You've grown it and done it, it that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, for us, it has to be much. There is, you know, it, it can't be a problem. We've got to, you know, we've got to make it work. Also, I think that with, um, you know, my career in food, that helps me to, to um, understand where there could be opportunities to make most of uh, of a farm and to um, to, to make, it, make the numbers stack up. I mean, it's really, really sad that actually farming is is actually uh, not um, uh, an income that pays particularly well for lots of farmers as well. You have to be innovative, you have to have a number of different uh, revenue streams and you have to look at how you can maximise your opportunities. 
that um, my partner Tony is an engineer um, and obviously with my um, background in food we think we've got a really interesting combination of skills to try and really make the most of anything that we um, we get if, if, if that does happen so fingers crossed <laughs> you know I'm going to give it a good crack and <laughs> fingers crossed we'll end up where we want to be. What would you have what livestock? Well to a certain extent it depends on what what we actually get so i think we probably end up with some sheep we're quite open-minded as to to what else what else we get um and of course i want to be growing as much of my own food as possible um i'm trying to do as much as i can in the garden at the moment um but you know hopefully i'll be able to take this with a notch so we've kind of got to be flexible in terms of what we get depending on where we go oh, i mean i grew up in west country in dorset and my family's uh, also from devon and I just love it. I mean, you're in the most beautiful part of the country. I have just loved it so much when I've been to visit. It is just so stunning. And it's so rich in, uh, in, in agriculture as well. It's just amazing everything you see growing, just, you know, driving through. It's such a beautiful, rolling, verdant part of the country. I just love it. Mm. Well, you should move to Shropshire then. Oh, <laughs> gorgeous. I love it. I, I really am a huge fan of Shropshire. Mm. How long have you been there for? 21 years this month oh that reminds me it's our it's yes it is this month and on our anniversary of moving in we have a bottle of sparkly and fish and chips oh a perfect moving moving day food isn't it mm. <laughs> so when it comes to your moving time charlotte i'm expecting some little either bottle of prosecco or asti spumante and fish and chips in a in paper dreaming of that moment <laughs> <laughs> And I hope it's soon for you, Charlotte. Gee, I've just realised that's twice I've mentioned chips today. Thank you to Charlotte Pike. Her five recipe books are available now, including Smoked, Fermented and The Hungry Student Cookbook. And if you're in the mood for a recipe, Charlotte has kindly shared with us her very own toasted fig leaf ice cream. Oh, oh sounds wonderful. Um, I shall put that on Shatbagley pages with also a link to Charlotte as well. Thank you to all my guests today. Uh, just as a heads up, episode 11 is going to be in two weeks' time. And as part of it, we will be joined by a Bake Off favourite. So that's it for another week. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Glyn, do you fancy fish and chips for tea? No, I know it's not our home anniversary yet. 